Well, as Matt said, today we're going to wrap up our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And I'll tell you, it's been very humbling for me to preach the message of the ultimate preacher. Um, and very intense. You've been with us. You know that we've been calling this study Blessing and Mission, and since this is the last week, it's the last time you have to hear me explain it, but I am going to explain it because I think it's really important. And I think it sets up what we're going to be talking about today, or really what Jesus is going to talk about today, which is very simple, very poignant, very direct, and really very profound. We've been calling it Blessing because contrary to what you might be tempted to think, when you begin to study this message, and it then begins to study you. When you begin to read it and it begins to read you, when you begin to examine it and it then does for you what it will do for you, but only if you come to it humbly, only if you come to it broken, only if you come to it as a creature who comes to hear the message of his Creator. If you come to it critically and all you're interested in is its content and you want to dissect it and you want to criticize it and you just want to learn about it and that's it and you're going to walk away, well, that's one thing. You'll learn some curious things and go, oh, well, isn't that great? And you'll just go back to the same life you were living before you heard it. But if you come and you stand under it humbly and you realize that your wisdom is beneath it and its wisdom is so unfathomably far above you <laughs> that you open your heart and mind to it, well, then it will examine you, and it will give to you what I've been calling a spiritual MRI of all these different areas of your life, and it's quite revealing, isn't it? Because what does an MRI do? Just think about it for a minute. Does it give you a picture of your skin? Does it reveal what the exterior of you looks like? Does it show you who you are out here? No, everybody can see that with their eyes. It penetrates you. It looks through you. And it reveals to you who you are in here. Guys, that's what Jesus has been doing with this sermon. It's just so obvious if you've been hanging with us, if you've been studying this, if you've been following along with us, that that's what he's interested in. He's assuming that we're going to do good things out here. That's an assumed thing. What he's dealing with is the unseen parts. But they're not unseen to him. So he's been coming to us and he's been saying things like, all right, when you pray, do you hear that word when? He didn't say if. He's assuming you're in on prayer. He says, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray standing on the street corners and in the synagogues to be seen by men. Oh, no, 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 don't pray like them. I tell you now, they have their reward and their reward is the 30 seconds of applause that they get from all the people around them who think, wow, that was really well stated. That was very eloquent. That was theologically correct. I love the way you worked in that little verse. That was terrific. You're spectacular. Applause ends, reward over. When you pray, he says, go into your closet and pray to your Father in secret, and your Father who sees you in secret, well, He will reward you. When you give, do you hear that? It's not an if. Is it an if for you? Jesus is, is assuming it. He's saying, when you give, okay, well, don't be like the hypocrites. They have trumpets sounded before them. They want everybody to see just how much they put in the deal. They want their name on this or whatever. He's, don't do it like them. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't even do it in such a way that you might be tempted to feel good about yourself for the doing of it. And your father who sees what you do in secret, well, he will reward you in secret. 
When you fast, don't disfigure your face. Don't be like these people who walk around and they want you to know that they're fasting because they want you to think that they are like really awesome. And that's the applause they live for and that's the applause they get. Jesus is dealing with the interior of us, not just the exterior. And he did that with the law too. He said, listen, you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. Okay, we get that. Most of us feel pretty good about ourselves because most of us at least have not done that. But we've all done it in here. And isn't that where he goes next? You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. But I say to you, Jesus says, as one who speaks with authority. If you're angry with your brother in your heart, you've murdered him in your heart. Guilty. Oh, crud. You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, you know what? No, 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 don't say it. No, but no, I'm going to say it. No, no, please keep it to yourself. No, I'm going to say it. You know what? It's going to be very revealing. Yeah, that's why I'm saying it. I say to you, if you look at another person with lust in your heart, guess what? Guilty. Jesus with this sermon has been running right past who we are out here, and he's been diving way down deep into who we are in here. And if we're humble enough to allow ourselves to be examined, to sit still for his MRI. Well, then it's revealing and it's uncomfortable, and yet contrary to the uncomfortable nature of that revelation, what Jesus is describing and inviting each one of us into, it's altogether invitational, is in fact the blessed life. And here's why it's the blessed life. It's not the blessed life because it's the life we may be necessarily already pursuing. It's not the blessed life because it's the life that the world comes to us with and says, if you can get enough of this, if you can gain some of this, if you can have this, and then of course your health, you're blessed, which is almost unattainable. But even if it is attainable, or one of those rare few who get all that, It's empty. It's the blessed life specifically because it is life together with Jesus. Look, he gives us the scan. He reveals to us the disease to cause us in some sense to panic and to go, good grief, I'm worse off than I thought I was. And there is not anything in my power that I can do to fix this. Jesus, heal me. Take me, I'm yours. Not just my sin. No, no, no. Take me, I'm yours. Nowhere does Jesus say, give me your sin, you keep your life, and go live any way you want, see you in heaven. Got you covered. He comes to us and he lays down his infinitely valuable blood, and by that he purchases the forgiveness for every one of our sin, past, present, and future, and by that he purchases us. Do you not know that you are not your own, Paul says, but that you've been bought with a price? Therefore, do what? Take your life and go do whatever you want. No. Therefore, glorify God with your body. What do you do with your body? Everything. It really leaves pretty much nothing out. The life that Jesus is inviting us into that is, in fact, the blessed life is a life of repentance. It is a life of surrender. It is a life of abject brokenness and humility before the Lord, and it is a life in which we go all in for Him. And we get up every day and die to ourselves and follow Him in that day. Then we go to sleep and we get up the next day and we die to ourselves and follow Him in that day. 
and in him find, find true life and true blessing. Jesus doesn't just forgive our sins, guys. He then fills us with His Spirit, and through His Word, sermons like this and every other word in the Scriptures, and in community with other people with whom we are to live, in community with other Christian people. Okay, bit by bit, piece by piece, little by little, He begins to deal with our sin, practically. He begins to take out our untruthfulness and replace it with His truthfulness. He begins to take out our selfishness and replace it with His selflessness. He begins to take out our impatience and replace it with His patience. He begins to take out our stinginess and replace it with His generosity. He begins to take out our total lack of compassion for our fellow man and begins to give us His heart for the hurt, for the poor, for the broken. And on and on and on and on it goes. And here's what happens as a result. Little by little, bit by bit, piece by piece. And look, sometimes it's one step forward and nine steps back. I get that. But ultimately, it's forward. We begin to look necessarily less and less like the person we were when we came to Him, not just with our sin, but with our whole selves. And more and more and more like Him. So we're calling it blessing, but we're also calling it mission because that's what happens, you see. And when that happens and we begin to look less and less like us and more and more like Him, guess who the world gets to see? They get to see the otherwise invisible Jesus alive and well and at work in us. We are the body of Christ. And they begin to see Him working in and through His body. And so we've come to the end of this really profound message. And Jesus, in a sense, closes with an altar call. It's like we get to the end and He says, look, you know, I've been talking to you for five straight weeks now about not just out here, but in here. About life with me versus life on your own. And in grace and in love and in mercy... I'm not going to let you leave until I call you to make a decision. So what is it? Are you in or are you out? And you got to understand that you must decide because not to decide is to decide. And nothing short of eternity hangs in the balance. It's really, well, it's really direct. We pick up our study today in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 13, where Jesus says this. Notice the imagery, because He's going to give us images to help us understand our choice. And by which to analyze our own lives and to help us understand what choice we've made, despite what we might say. He says, enter by the narrow gate, which incidentally is not a suggestion. He doesn't say, I think it'd be a good idea for you to enter by the narrow gate. He comes to us and in grace and in love and in mercy says, Thou shalt enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to... Stop. I want to say it out loud with you. I think it would be good for us spiritually and not just for us but for everyone around us, for everyone that God has providentially brought into our lives and brought us into their lives. It is uncomfortable, this word, this thought, this truth. And yet just Jesus gives us this truth, doesn't He? 
I love Jesus. There's no surprises with him. He doesn't sit back knowing the truth because he's got a foot in heaven and a foot on earth. Does he not? I mean, is there anyone who has ever lived like him? Answer, no. Nobody understands the realities of heaven, the realities of earth, the realities of life, the realities of death, the realities of eternal life, the realities of eternal... Well, we're going to say the word in a second. Like him. And nowhere does he stop and go, you know what, if I say this, it is seriously going to be unpopular. So I'll just skate by that. Leaving us to miss the message. Maybe miss life. Jesus has a no surprises policy. He's a full disclosure guy. And for that, we should be very thankful. All right, I'm going to reread the statement, and please indulge me in this, okay? When I get to that word, it starts with D. We go all in, all of us. You ready? Your Savior comes to you, and He says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to... How'd that sound? How did it feel coming out of your mouth? For the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it, well, are many. For the gate is narrow, he continues, and the way is hard. What, it doesn't lead to health and wealth and... Curious question, isn't it? The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. To what it is you really want. Here and forever. And those who find it, he says, are few. And you're like, okay, okay, wait a minute. What exactly is Jesus saying here? He's saying, guys, I've been bringing the message to you for five weeks. I've been giving you the spiritual MRIs on all these different areas of your life. I've been revealing not just what you're doing out here. I've assumed that's good. I've been dealing with who you are in here. And I have been calling you to a life together with me, a life of repentance, a life of humility, a life of brokenness, a life of faith. And I want to know, are you in or are you out? Because nothing short of eternity hangs in the balance. And so to help us make the decision, he gives us these images. In this case, two roads. Well, to help us figure it out. To help us figure out, okay, where am I really? What's my decision? And again, notice what he says. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, which tells you what about life together with Jesus, about the road that leads to eternal life. It tells you that it's confining in some sense, doesn't it? It's narrow. It feels tight and claustrophobic at times, I would guess. And it certainly does. Think about this. Christ-like truthfulness, for example, is confining, isn't it? Because we do not live in a world that values or operates within the realm of truthfulness. I've said this before, but here's how you know how the person on the other side of the negotiating table is lying to you. Their lips are moving. That's the test. That's the standard. Everyone postures. Everyone spins. Everyone lies. Not everyone. Christ-like truthfulness is confining. And sometimes you really feel that way. Christ-like selflessness is confining. 
It limits our ability to do what we want, when we want, and how we want, and with whom we want. Does it not? To have it our way, you know, the Burger King life, it's a, you can't do that. It's confining. It's restrictive. Christ-like patience? Wow. It's a lot easier to just leave people out, to leave people behind, to say, you know what, you're never going to get it. See you later. You know, I, we, you know, we've had this conversation 90 times. I'm done. I've been sitting in the car for 45 minutes. Now the car's leaving. I'm leaving and I'm, you, bye. It's restrictive. Christ-like generosity is restrictive because it limits our ability to accumulate wealth and then buy wealth to gain significance, to get the applause of men, to be made to feel valuable by the economy of this world. That doesn't matter in the next. In the one that's for forever. To find our security in it because we're divesting or we're investing, but in a different world. Christ-like compassion is confining because it compels us to say or to do or to give or to be or to become something or someone that we would never otherwise feel compelled to say or to do or to give or to be or to become. Do you see how this works? And so Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. He's saying the narrow gate, okay, it's confining. But here's the other side of that coin. When you move through it, it opens up into an ever-expanding world in which you find in your traveling companion who is Jesus everything that you and I are looking to gain in our untruthfulness, in our selfishness, in our impatience, in our stinginess, and in our overlooking of the needy in this world, and then some. It is an ever-expanding world of freedom and of joy, and it ends in eternal life. The other ends in destruction. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it, he says, are many, which tells you what else about this narrow road. It tells you that it's the unpopular road. So then as you examine yourself and your own life and you say, okay, if one of my goals in life is really to be able to say and to do and to live like pretty much everyone else, it's to be popular. Sounds like a different path, doesn't it? Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy. It leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard, he says, that leads to life. That's where it leads. And those who find it are few. And Jesus standing there on the mount with that audience and with every audience since who have taken in this word is saying, look, what path are you on? Are you in or not? And so to help us figure it out, he gives us these images, this image of two very different roads. Hard, easy, (laughs) narrow, wide, unpopular, popular, with Jesus, without, in truth, life, destruction. And now he gives us the image of two different trees, trees that are, are understood not by what you see externally, he makes that clear, but by the interior of their fruit. He comes to us in verse 15 and he says, beware of false prophets. And then what he says next is really significant. He says, who come to you in sheep's clothing? So what do they look like? They look like sheep. But inwardly, he says, 
are ravenous wolves. And the word sheep is a very significant word because it allows us to expand the conversation a bit because all over the Bible, the word sheep is used to describe God's people, not just true and false prophets. So David says, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. Therefore, David is his sheep. Jesus comes to us and he says, I am the good shepherd and my sheep know my voice. You get the idea? So I think when we read this, we've got to come to it. And if we want to look at ourselves through it, and I think we should... We need to say, all right, well, then how do I recognize not only true and false prophets, but true and false Christians? And Jesus answers the questions in verse 16, where he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. But here's the deal. You're going to have to cut the fruit open to know what it really is. Because a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like a sheep until you disrobe it. And so it is with these fruits. He goes on, he says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes? And what he's referring to here in his audience then would have understood this is the buckthorn bush. And the buckthorn bush produces a berry that looks exactly like a grape until you try to make jelly out of it. Until you crush it. Until you taste what's inside of it. And then you spit it out. He goes on. Or our figs, he says, gathered from thistles. What they knew that we don't know is that back then, and even now, I guess, there was a thistle that produced a certain kind of flower that looked from a distance like a fig, okay? But when you got up close, when you took it in your hand, when you put it in your mouth, when you bit into it, it's nasty. It's not sweet. It's not wonderful like a fig. It's not a fig. And Jesus continues. He's talking about trees. He says, every healthy tree, not some of them, not most of them. No, no, no. Every good tree, he says, bears good fruit. But the diseased tree, well, that tree bears bad fruit. In fact, he says a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And then he says, every tree that does not bear good fruit, what is its destination? It's just a different way of saying destruction, really. He says it's cut down and it's thrown into the fire. Jesus, you are so subtle. These images are so soft. Spice it up a bit. That wouldn't be gracious to be soft. It wouldn't be truthful to be subtle. They're cut down and they're thrown into the fire. And then he says again, thus you will recognize the good trees from the bad trees is the idea by their fruit. You're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, hey, we've been looking inside. We've been cutting the fruit. Are you in or are you out? Are you in on this life of repentance and humility and brokenness led by Christ? It's a narrow road. It's hard. feels confining. It's with Him, however, the blessed one Himself, and it leads to eternal life. It opens up into a world of ever-expanding blessedness. Or not, and if that didn't help, the roads, He then gives us the trees. Good trees, bad trees. Good fruit, bad fruit. And you can't just look at the exterior because a wolf in sheep's clothing looks like a sheep. The buckthorn berry looks like a grape. The fig, well, that thistle flower looks like it, doesn't it? 
until you bite into it. And bite into it is what Jesus really, in a sense, has been doing with me and with you. He's been going far past what we do out here, and he's been diving deeply into who we really are inside. And he's been making it clear bit by bit throughout the whole course of his sermon that the fruit of the one who is truly living life together with Jesus are things like transparent humility, private and public purity, trusting and persistent prayer, sincere and authentic, I'm not looking for credit, I'm doing this out of a real love for Christ, obedience, genuine generosity, truthfulness, selflessness, love, and so forth. And the question is not, look, do you have all of these different kinds of fruits and then some fully matured and hanging off of all of the branches of the tree that is you? The question is, do you have any of this fruit, mature or not, hanging off of any of the branches of the tree that is you? Because a bad tree can't produce good fruit. And a good tree, well, that's the kind it produces. And the question as well is, are you growing in the production of this kind of fruit? Because that's what happens when you come to Christ and give Him your sin and self, and He fills you with His Spirit through His Word then and by community, and He begins little by little, piece by piece, bit by bit, to change your heart, to take out your sin and to replace it with His character, and you then become practically Less and less and less and less like you, and more and more and more and more like Him. And look, I know sometimes it's one step forward and 21 steps back. It is. But ultimately, it's forward. It's ultimately forward. And here's the deal. Jesus is fruitful inside and out. And He drives that home now, beginning in verse 21. He comes and He says, "'Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord,' and the repetition matters.'" To the Hebrew ear, that implies intimacy of relationship, connectedness, depth. So Jesus is saying, not everybody who who claims not only to know me as Lord, but like to know me well as Lord. Okay, not everyone who claims that will enter the kingdom of heaven, but notice this. Here's who will, but only the one who what? Does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And I know that's kind of confusing because you go, wait a minute, I thought the gospel was um, that I don't have to do anything to gain the kingdom of heaven. Right. Jesus did it all. All to him I owe, we sing. That's true. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. We sang that one today. Right. Christ entered into this world. And as the God-man lived before God for man, the perfect life that God requires of man, male and female. And then He offered His perfect life as a sacrifice for our sin, past, present, and future. And then He rose again from the dead, defeating both sin and death for us. And we come to Him empty-handed, unless we bring our sin, in which case, okay, I got something for you, Lord, but I'm not thinking it's a positive. And He claims our sin, and He forgives our sin, and then He claims us. That's the interesting part. That, I think, is what Jesus is saying. And He goes to work in us. And we become, practically speaking, less and less like the old us. And more and more and more and more like Him. And He's the perfectly obedient one. So then, wouldn't it make sense that we would do the will of the Father? 
Wouldn't it make sense that we would begin to experience practically in our life what our Lord earlier in this Sermon on the Mount taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our own hearts and in our own lives. And so Jesus can say, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, and who thus claims not only to know me as their Lord, but to know me well, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, and by doing so, thus proves the reality of his faith. And here again, it's not just an external obedience, for Jesus says, on that day, meaning on the last day, on the judgment day, many will say to me, and so Jesus is saying, kind of subtly, I guess, that he's the judge. What will they say? What will they point to for entrance into the kingdom of heaven? What will you point to? Because the people that he's about to describe point to what they did. They don't point to his grace. They don't point to his mercy. They don't point to his blood. They don't point to his life, death, burial, and resurrection. They don't point to his sacrifice. They point to their sacrifice. They don't come and say, listen, nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. And I evidenced that because, Lord, I I did become more like you and less like me. By your grace, I found the ability to do the will of my Father. I don't claim those works. Those are filthy rags. I claim your perfect work and that alone. But the reality of my faith, well, it actually made a difference. They simply cite their sacrifices. Sacrifices done out here. But here's what their heart is in here. Their heart in here is saying, God, I'm doing these things for you so that you will do for me what I'd really like. Give me the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to give this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to pray like this, and then I'm going to serve like this, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to line up all of these things. And then when I stand before you, I'm going to give you the whole list of all these wonderful things that I've done, and you owe me. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Do we not do this? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Not you look kind of familiar to me and I think maybe we knew each other at some point, but not at all. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, because you are not sheep, your wolves. You're not grapes, you're buckthorn berries, you're not figs, you're like those little flower thistle things, and it's so frustrating because you see it from a distance and you're hungry like, and you go over there and you think, this is the fig, you know, and it's, it's not. You're not in. And that's the question. He preaches for a decision, Jesus. And so to help us figure out the decision, he gives us the images of two very different roads and of two very different trees that produce two very different kinds of fruits. And and he talks of two very different kinds of claims. And then finally, he closes with two very different houses. He says this in verse 24. He says, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them, and faith is the idea, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And then here comes the judgment. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall. It was not 
destroyed. But why? Because it had been built or founded on the rock of a real and authentic relationship with Christ that manifested itself inwardly and outwardly in the fruit of a good tree, in the confining life of the narrow path. Makes for great jelly. Sweet. But then he continues and says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And I'm guessing the houses look the same from the exterior. And then the judgment came, and the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Great was its destruction. End of sermon, by the way. And then Matthew comments, and he says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching on heaven and hell and the kind of person who by faith in him gains the one and shuns the other. For he was teaching them as one who had authority on these subjects like no one else who has ever or will ever live, and certainly not as their scribes. And why would he not have authority? He's God. My goodness, to whom else should we go on these matters? So he gets to the end of the message and he says, all right, are you in or are you out? Will you bring to me your sin and self and let me forgive your sin fully? Complete pardon. But give to me your life. It's not yours anymore at that point. And know this, I'm going to go to work in you. And I'm going to make you less and less and less like you. And more and more and more and more like me. And sometimes it's going to feel confining, and sometimes it's going to be hard, but it's with me that path. And here's the kind of fruit it will bear. It will bear the fruit of my character, not just of spiritual activity. And it will be sweet for you and everyone else who through you, as they see me alive and well and at work in you, Come to do what the Scriptures invite us to do. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He's good. Oh, and incidentally, that narrow life will open up into a world of ever-expanding freedom and joy and love and eternal life. Not a bad deal. But there it is. Are you in or are you out? And here's the really wondrous piece. The offer's still open. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you today for a, um, a truthful Jesus, a merciful Jesus, God, a gracious Jesus, a selfless Jesus, a generous 
Jesus, a compassionate Jesus who looks at us and for reasons known only to you, is moved. He was moved to become like us, to live and die for us, to rise again to claim us. And who so graciously offers, not just to forgive our sin, but to take our otherwise foolishly led lives and to make them useful and wondrous and glorious. Let us see the beauty in the hard path. God, make our lives sweet. We thank you for our Lord, for all that he has done and will yet do for us. And I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts in such a way as to compel us to bring our everything to him. In Jesus' name. Amen.